right. Well, we're going to be in the book of Ruth today, and it is so good to be back with you. Um, I'll have more to say about that at the end as well. Um, but it was really great to take a break, and it is really great to be back. So the way we're going to handle this today, we're going to do the entirety of chapter 1, and that's not as daunting as it seems because this is uh, narrative, and it can kind of lend itself to that. But a couple things about this book, it is one that uh, doesn't get enough press, in my view, uh, as many of the Old Testament books don't. But uh, even Goethe, who was well known for his antagonism toward Christianity, referred to this book as the loveliest little epic and idyllic whole which has come down to us. And I think this is such a helpful book because it kind of operates simultaneously on two levels, and it also is going to allow us to make some very practical application that we don't get to see all the time. The two levels being, there is a story with a lowercase s that is running throughout this book of Ruth and Naomi and Elimelech and uh, Boaz and so on. We're going to learn from their lives. But there is the capital story of redemptive history that this plays a key role. And you actually eventually see how this story goes from disaster and destruction to redemption. And then eventually, knowing where we are now in redemptive history, the Lord Jesus comes through the bloodline that is spoken of in this book. So, it's a great help to us on multiple levels. And the way I want to handle this today is we're just going to kind of explain our way through the text, and I'll dig in where we need to dig in, and then we will stop and park the bus and make some application uh, where we have opportunity to do so. But let's go ahead and get after it right here in verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, <coughs> and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, and he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahon and Kilion, and they were Epaphrodites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. So a few things to pay attention to there. First, the time. This was in the period of the Judges. This was roughly between 1200 and 1020 B.C. It was between Joshua's death and the coronation of Saul as king. And if we thought 2020 was bad, the period of the Judges was infinitely worse. And there is actually a scripture that kind of sums all this up. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So let's think about that. You think of all the shenanigans that we see in the modern moment, and you multiply that by 100,000, that was the period of the judges. And in fact, one of the only bright spots during that time, there were, there were a few, but Ruth and this story is one of the bright spots. Now, on top of this awful time that they were in, there was also a severe famine. And so people were literally starving to death because they didn't have enough food. And so what we're going to see happen here in just a moment is this man, Elimelech, make a decision that on the surface might seem like wisdom because he's trying to go get his family food, so thumbs up for that. But the problem is where he goes 
to take them to get that food is exactly the wrong place. And that is in the country of Moab. And Moab, to say the least, <coughs> was not the place for an Israelite family. Uh, at this point in redemptive history, God's presence was tied to the temple in a geographic place. Uh, or it was tied to the geographic place. And he made very clear to his people they need to stay within the land. And so for them to go off in the direction of Moab is not the move. And then on top of that, this particular land to which they had gone, uh, you see this referred to many times in the Old Testament, the Moabites, I mean, in all charity, they were bad people. They followed a false god named uh, Chimelish, who required child sacrifice, and they were not permitted to enter the temple of God down to the 10th generation. So think about what offense the Lord was putting around this area and this kind of people because of all the difficulty uh, spiritually that he knew would be caused to his people if they moved in this direction geographically and if they moved in this direction certainly spiritually. So thumbs up for him trying to get his family fed, but two big thumbs down for not seeing the spiritual danger and the increased physical danger by seeking to do that in Moab. And look what happens in verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. So let's zoom out here for a second. One of the worst possible times in history, one of the worst decisions that he could have made, and then in the midst of that, he perishes, and now his older wife is left alone with her two sons in this rough place, and let's keep going. Verse 4, they took Moabite wives, so there we go, something else that didn't need to happen. One was named Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, by the way, Orpah, and the other was named Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. Verse 5, and both Mahon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So if this wasn't true, you'd be, think somebody was, uh, be thinking somebody was making this up because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Padre Familius has died. Now the two sons that were left to care for the woman have also died and the people that she's got here are from Moabite lineage. This is bad on top of bad on top of bad. And I think that leads us to our first principle today. And that is that our choices have consequences. Our choices have consequences. And I think intuitively all of us know this. But man, when you see it like this, it really drives this home. And, and I, I'll just say this as, let me talk to the guys first. Fellas, I think there's a particularly poignant word for us in seeing this. Because we are, by God's design, we are the leaders of our families. Now, we don't lead like dictators. We don't tell our wives this is what we're doing. We're, we're not into that. But God has given us the responsibility to lead our family. And this poor guy led them down a path of absolute destruction, and had the Lord not radically intervened, which we see here beginning in verse 6, this story would have gotten even worse. So 
here's the, the tension that I hope we feel as men, and that is that we are responsible to lead, but also we are not alone in our leadership because the Lord is with us, the Scripture is given to us, you're in a church that wants to love you and support you and help you and come alongside you and tell us, tell you stories of our own failures and here's, don't do what I did, you're going to make your own mistakes, but don't do these. And that there's a collective gospel culture where we can work on problems in life together as opposed to being alone. And part of the horror and the tragedy of this part of the text is they were alone. Dad has died, the two sons have died, and here she is with these two women. And just to drive this home a little bit further, there was no life insurance at this time. The life insurance policy was in all those people that they just put in the ground. And so, again, this is a horrible situation. And so I guess the application I want to make for the men, and then we'll talk to everybody else, is, fellas, how can we basically do the opposite of what this guy did? Where can you put your wife and your family on opposite footing of what he did? Put them in a good church. Make sure you have life insurance of various kinds, probably. Think through all the different ways something could go wrong and then try to mitigate that risk. And for all of our sakes, goodness gracious, do not be too proud to ask for help, to confess your neediness, and to listen to your brothers around you that can help you so that this kind of situation doesn't happen. Life's going to be hard enough as it is. I mean, we're going to have enough trouble as it is in a fallen world. Let's not make it worse by forgetting that our choices have consequences. Now, let me speak very briefly here to the women and, and kind of everybody. Ladies, I think in some ways, you are the dominant voice in your children's life, even though your husband might be tasked with leading the family. And what I mean by that is I know, and I think this is true whether you work outside the home or you don't work outside the home, odds are you were per capita spending more minutes with those little children, if they're in your house, than your husband is. And so whatever you can do to keep doing what I know you're all doing, but so this is more of a high five, keep going, but let's keep putting Jesus in front of them, keep asking older women about, hey, what did you do in this situation? What can we do here? And keep pouring and investing and loving on those kids and going in this direction. Because, and this is true for all of us, the choices that we make today help create the future we experience tomorrow. The choices that we make today help create the future we experience tomorrow. And we got to hear that. But let me also say this, because if you're like me, you're like, oh my gosh, this is so heavy. How are we going to make it? We're not going to make it on our own. But part of the greatness of, of this text, and then of course we get into this more deeply as, as the story unfolds, is God, even in the midst of this guy's really bad decision, shows up and helps them. So if you hear this and you're like, oh my gosh, it's all on me, I got to lead, or oh, I'm the pre predominant voice of spirituality in my children's life, there's no way I'm going to do this. Mm -mm, you're, you're not hearing all of it. Because one of the things that I learned from the Puritans 
that I also see in this text is that our foolishness cannot outshine God's providence. Our foolishness cannot outshine God's providence. And this guy, he makes bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, and God still shows up, and he intervenes, and he helps. So in the midst of the weight of how are we going to do this, how are we going to lead, how are we going to live, we're going to do it through the power of God revealed through the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. So we got to hear both. And to help us in that direction, look at verse 6. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, God is going to be mentioned 23 times in this book. He's only twice mentioned by the author. The rest of it comes through the character, so that's of significance. Verse 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. Now what's fascinating about this is that this shows us what we're going to get from Naomi from the rest of the passage. She's going to be a mixed bag of things that I think we need to listen to and other things we need to give a pretty good side eye to. The good news here is she's on track. She's going back toward Judah. That's where they need to be. And then on top of that, between the lines here, this is in the Hebrew, the way that she's talking about the Lord, it, it's hesed language. This uh, kindness and faithfulness and loving kindness, it's almost indefinable for us today, but the, the covenant nature of God is what she's pointing to here. So she is exhorting them in the right direction toward the right God right here in verses 8 and 9. But look what happens. Verse 10, and they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. So again, that's good news. But Naomi then says... Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? So here's where the wheels start to come off. Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is, uh, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Okay? That should raise a flag for you. But let's keep going. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And that Hebrew word there is very interesting. She, it, it means that she clung so closely to her, and she indicated that she wasn't going anywhere. But then Naomi says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and stop the bus and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Okay? One writer that I consulted on this called this basically reverse evangelism. It's almost like you walk up to somebody and you're like, I want to talk to you about Jesus. And then immediately right after that, you're like, but we should also consider what Allah has to say. And maybe the Buddha. And it's like, what? No. 
you, you, we should never be encouraging people to look into other gods for any reason. <coughs> so then the question becomes, <coughs> why in the world would she do this? Why in the world would she do this? Different theories. Here's what I think. I think that grief has a blinding effect. And sometimes when we are grieving, we say and we do things that don't make sense, and we can give bad advice, be it spiritual or otherwise, because of the disorienting nature of grief. Okay? Now, you might find another commentator out there that has something different to say, but that's what I think is going on here. That she is so turned around because of all the awful things, the death of her husband, death of her two sons, they're about to starve to death, they're completely alone in abject poverty, so on and so forth. That's what I think is going on here. Now, is there more than that? Probably. But that's what seems to be happening. That's the only explanation for why she's kind of all over the place. Because verse 8 and 9, rah-rah, God's in charge, Hesed language. Here, you should go back to your own gods. They just don't make sense. The other thing that I, I feel, I'm, I'm less sure about that. I'm 100% sure about this. She is ruthlessly concerned about their physical safety. And she wants them to be taken care of. She wants them to have food. She wants them to get married. But in the midst of this, I think she fumbles the spiritual football. But thankfully, she wasn't the only one on the field. Look at verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, this needs an asterisk, uh, asterisk and a discussion. Because what I think has happened here, and we don't know if it happened in this moment, or if it happened before, now we see evidence of it, but somewhere along the way, Ruth has encountered the God of the Bible. That is the only explanation for this kind of counsel, particularly in the face of reverse evangelism. So Ruth either just met Jesus, or met, uh, was saved by God at this point. I want to make sure I get my redemptive history right. And she comes out with this truth, or that happened in the past, and now the petunia has sprung through the dirt. Either way, gives us our next principle, and that is when we meet God, it changes us. It changes every single part of us. It changes how we think. It changes how we deal with grief. It changes how we manage money, how we parent, how we engage in relationships, how we struggle, how we suffer, how we succeed, how we fail. It affects everything. And so part of what it means to follow God in our generation is that it is a progressive unfolding, just like a flower, of becoming more like Jesus. And so part of what I hope you take from this 
is that God has been in the business of changing people, even in hopeless situations, for a long time. And so if you come in here today and you're like, man, I haven't really said much about it, but I feel pretty hopeless. You need to know that God, if, she, if he can do that in Ruth's life, he's going to do something in your life. It may not be immediate. It may not fix everything. But God does transforming work all the time. Always has. Always will. It's who he is. And I think a second question we ought to kind of think about here is, what areas of my life really need to see some of that transformative change? In the providence of God, you have rolled in here this week after engaging in some particular struggles that really need this truth. Some of us really need to be reminded this morning of the transforming, changing power of the grace of God. And you need to see it in Ruth's life, and you need to be reminded that it is there for you as well. So don't give up. Don't give in. When you sin and you fail and you will, repent. Go back to Jesus. Go back to Jesus' people and stay the course, my friends. Because he didn't give up on Ruth and he is not giving up on you. Verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And this is interesting. This word means like a buzz. The, uh, everybody was like, what is up? And I think the way the language leans here is not good. I don't know if they're looking at her and be like, oh my gosh, she is aged 30 years since we saw her. Or, you know, she looks awful. You know how people are. Whatever it is, this is not good. But what they see there leads to this. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now here's some more of that grief, tainting her theology. Listen to this. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. And so they returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So here what I see, and again, you might find somebody else that sees something different, but this is what I see. Her grief has now turned to bitterness. And let me tell you something. That is so easy to happen. Nobody sets out to, say, to go, I just want to become bitter. It's not how it works. But part of how it does work is when awful things happen to us, if we do not deal with them, that grief can easily become bitterness. And so that's part of why talking about the bad things that happen to us, it, it matters. You might feel like this does nothing. I'm telling you, it does on levels that you can't understand. And even what we learn about, this is another story for another time, but about the brain and how these kinds of things affect us. Listen, when the older I get, the more I see why God has created us to exist in community. I mean, there might be seasons where we need to grieve alone. I totally get that, 100% support that. 
But if you never engage with other people in that grief, it is a short path from grief to bitterness. And so part of what we need to learn from her is we don't want to go down this path. We do not want to be bitter. Because what does it do? It makes us say stuff like this. Okay? Now, again, you might find somebody that says something different on this. But I think part of the tension that we got to understand here is Naomi is right. She is right about the fact that God is ultimately responsible for things that happen. Okay? But there is a difference between God being ultimately responsible and actively responsible. Does that make sense? You can be ultimately responsible without being actively responsible. And so I think the way to think about this, and I want to cut her some slack here also because of where she was at in redemptive history. Listen, we got a lot more of the book than she had, and we have been able to look back at thousands of years of God's faithfulness that, that she didn't have all that, okay? So on the one hand, I'm really concerned about it, and on another hand, I'm, I'm really gracious toward her. But what I'm getting at here is we got to hold these things in tension. we got to have God's sovereignty and God's goodness. you got to have God's sovereignty. He's Lord over all. Everything happens, and like I said, he's ultimately responsible, but he's also good, and so he cannot be associated with evil. So when something awful happens, somebody is raped, somebody is killed, God is not directly responsible for those things. We know this. But that tension of how could he let this happen and that family loved Jesus and they were all killed driving to church. I mean, we all know these stories. There's going to be things that we can't understand fully in this life. And we got to acknowledge, listen, the world is broken, the enemy is real, and we're not going to get all this stuff resolved until we get to heaven. So what do we do in the meantime? I think we hang on to verses like this, and uh, let me give you two that, that help me, that I think are a better path for us to follow, personally, than, than what, what we got here. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, this is Joseph talking about his situation. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And then to me, my favorite on this topic is this, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those or for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So in this story, in our story, everything that happens is not good. There's a lot of bad, awful things that happen. But because God is sovereign, he is able to take all those broken pieces, all those awful things, and still do good and accomplish his kingdom purpose, even somehow through those things. You and I can't do that. I have a struggle like managing my own life sometimes. I cannot imagine being able to do this on a global scale throughout thousands of years. But that's who God is, and that's what God does. So he is able to bring really good things out of really bad things. 
So just a few kind of nuts and bolts and, and kind of navigating this. Let me just give you a couple. You might want to write these down or not. Nothing happens by chance. God's in complete control. One way that, to, that helps me think about this, everything either comes from God's hand or through God's hand. But nothing happens by chance. Another little micro principle here, God is at work in our suffering. He is absolutely at work in our suffering, and this story is yet another reminder of that. And finally, suffering has a purpose in our lives, and that is to make us more like Jesus. The world wants us to curse God and die, like Job's friends, Job's wife. The enemy wants to destroy us when these kinds of things happen. The enemy loves it when we get bitter and then we tell other people that we're bitter. enemy loves that because every Christian he can put in that situation, you know what they're not doing? They ain't telling nobody about Jesus. They are not loving on their neighbor because it's become so selfish and in focus. And the enemy loves that. But when God gets involved... He uses that suffering to more and more form us into the image of Christ. So let's close all this today by talking about Christ. How in the world do we get to Jesus from this text? I want to give you just a couple of different ways. Number one, clearly, he's not mentioned by name, right? So there's not a direct link here. But what we do know, and you'll find this out in just a few pages, a few weeks, a few chapters, the Lord Jesus eventually comes through this very line. He comes through the line of Ruth and Boaz, which is mind-blowing to me. But this is yet another example of exactly what we were just talking about. What the, what, what the enemy meant for evil, or what God means for good. What looks like an awful, awful thing, God uses to bring about the best thing that ever happened. So we got to see that connection to the story of redemptive history. So that's the first thing. The second, I see some pointers in the way that God provides for his people. Look back at verses uh, 8 and 9. And you think about that, that, that Hesed covenant language that is talked about there. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have deal, dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Friends, how has the Lord ultimately dealt kindly with us? It's through the Lord Jesus. The kindness of God led us to repentance. He gave us faith to believe. He drew us in. And now we have life new, life anew, and life eternal. The kindness of God is all over our lives because of the Lord Jesus. And we can't see that and not see Christ. And you think about there in verse 9, she was praying that the Lord would help them find rest. Where do we find rest for our souls? We find rest in the Lord Jesus. We find that in a sense in this life, but we find that eternal rest in the next life. And we only get that in Christ. To give you a little metaphor here, if you think about this that this is kind of a picture of our lives. We're not in an actual famine, but some of us might feel like it. We, we, some of us have actually experienced physical death of a loved one, 
but not everybody. So we're out on the sea of life. Our boat is bobbing up and down with the waves and the storms, and we're looking for a harbor. We're looking for a rest. We're looking for a safe place. Where is that place of rest? But the Lord Jesus. It's the only place that we can turn. And finally, I see him in the situation kind of between the lines. They are in a hopeless situation, but God intervenes and he brings hope. Friends, how can you not see the gospel in that? We were in the most hopeless situation and God intervened and he gave us hope. He gave us hope that we wouldn't have had on our own. He gave us hope that endures not just now, but forever. And all of that is because of the Lord Jesus. So I want to end my message today with two questions. Number one, out of all that we've talked about, a lot to think about here today. What is the Lord saying to you through this? And number two, where do you most need the hope to which this text whispers. What's God saying to you through the text, and where do you most need the hope of the whisper of the gospel? Wherever those things intersect, let's get still and pray about them right now. Let's pray. Lord, so much to think about here. but your spirit has been given to us to to guide us and lead us in to all truth. I pray for all of us as individuals and as a community as we wrestle with these deep issues. And Lord, I also pray for us as we wrestle with the particular and specific struggles that are not the same as what we see in this text but they're similar enough that we recognize our deep and abiding need for you. That if you don't show up and help, we're going to be in a heap of trouble. And Lord, we, we resonate, we connect with Elimelech more than we wish we did. We make bad decisions sometimes too that don't think all the way through things. Lord, we pray that you'd help us with that so we do it less. And Lord, that we would also be reminded that underneath all of our falling down are the everlasting arms. And that we would trust in you and look to you and be helped by you. And that we would also cling to one another in the midst of that. So, Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. We pray that it would bear fruit today and also in the conversations to come. And we pray all this in the mighty and sufficient name of Jesus. Amen.